Well, good morning, church. Praise the Lord for another opportunity to go to his word. Let's go ahead and bow our hearts and our heads. We'll pray to the Lord before we get into the word. Father, uh, we're just amazed that uh, knowing who we are, um, understanding our own sinfulness and depravity, we are nevertheless uh, rejoicing to come and to draw near your throne of grace and have confidence that, that we can be heard, confidence that we can talk to you, and confidence that you can talk back to us through your word. Father, that confidence is not rooted in us. It is rooted in what Christ uh, did for us and continues to do even now as we pray. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us from your truth this morning. I pray we would find common ground at the foot of the cross here and that we would be humbled at your truth, that we would be humbled by the gospel because that is one element, Lord, of the gospel is to uh, level the playing field and to remind us, Lord, who we are truly before you. And so we seek for grace, we seek for humility now because we do need it in order to hear your truth. So teach us, Lord, be gracious to us. Apply this truth by your spirit, we pray. May we be ready and may you speak clearly. In Christ's holy name we pray and for your glory alone, amen. So uh, you may or may not be aware but in just few days, we'll be celebrating another anniversary of the Reformation. October 31st, 1517 marks the day when Martin Luther nailed a copy of his 95 Thesis to the door of Wittenberg Church, uh, which set in motion the greatest evangelical revival in history, 19, or uh, 1517. Uh, he did not do it as an act of rebellion against the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, he wanted to use his 95 arguments, really, to debate or to discuss with the church leadership about specifically the legitimacy of the practice of indulgences. Now, if you summarize the entire Reformation, uh, you can probably apply this slogan, Reformation the recovery of the gospel. Reformation, the recovery of the gospel. And in many uh, ways, we hear the church today is indebted to what the reformers did, which started with Martin Luther, but that was just the very beginning, and it lasted many more years after that as the church began to reform and recover the essence of what a true gospel is and the effects that that gospel has on us. And so this morning I want to uh, spend our, our time thinking of this glorious gospel, in particular the humbling nature of the gospel. As you begin to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please make your way there. If you don't have a Bible here, you're welcome to grab that one right there, okay? It'll be yours since no one wants to claim it. But go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And, and as you do that, I want to begin with a bold confession. 
a, a bold assumption and uh, uh, an even bolder proclamation. And my confession is this, that I, I stand before you this morning well aware of the fact that, that I am a proud man. Uh, so often my, my thoughts are full of pride, full of selfishness, and, and even my tongue sometimes lets you know about it. I, I do very well at hiding these things and battling these things inside of my heart, but every once in a while, you're, you become aware of this. Um, I know my heart. You may not know my heart, but, but I am very well aware of this reality. Pride is at the root of every one of our sins and really much of our discussion that we're having. Uh, my assumption this morning is this, that before me sits a congregation that just like me would, would, if I was to ask you to come up here, you would be willing or maybe begrudgingly raise your hand and say, me too, that, that I can be counted in that group of proud men or women. No one is immune from this deadly disease. So we both, you and I, are in the same group, and we both need, need this reminder. But an even bolder proclamation comes from the mouth of God himself when he says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 16 and 17, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And as he begins to list, give you that list, the very first thing he says it's haughty eyes. In other words, he says, I, I hate human pride. Proverbs 16, verse 5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. And the message is really clear that God hates people who brag. God hates when we exhibit pride. Now, now think of this, saints. Consider Consider this question, is it ever okay for all of us or any of us to, to brag about something, to be proud of something, to boast about something? Uh, were we created with this capacity to boast, or is it just the, one of the many effects of sin that, that we have? And I think if you were to just step back, and if you were to um, assess the, the scripture and, and go through many of the verses and places in the Bible, I think it becomes clear that God created man with this deep desire to boast in something great, with this deep desire to boast in someone great. Uh, we, we were created with this awareness that everything belongs to God, his air, his word, his creation, his power, his majesty, his grace, everything is his, and, and as the, that first couple in the garden, you come and you, and you walk with God, you have this fellowship and communion with him, you could not help yourself but to exclaim, praise God, Lord, this is yours, and you boast about his air, and you boast about his things that you experience. That is part of the reason why God created us is to magnify him, is to boast about him. But this desire to make much of God was polluted by sin in each one of us. And it made us hate to boast in God. 
Instead, we choose all, all sorts of things to brag about. We, we list our achievements, we, we begin to focus on our abilities, we begin to focus on our possessions or positions, and, and that is what we elevate now, and this is what we brag about and boast. We take our stuff, or so we think, and we show it off to each other and say, look at this, look at me, look at that. You know, since fall, mankind generally remains the same, arrogant and boastful. And as we look at this letter to the first Corinthians, we find that in many ways, we're just a reflection of the same disease. We have the same disease that we all need to deal with. And as we think about uh, the gospel and as we think about the, the reformation and the recovery of the pure truth of God, I want us just to think about gospel and how God ordained this in order to level the playing field for all of us so that we would find ourselves in great need of God's mercy and not to be proud and show off ourselves. I mean, just consider the Corinth here as we get into this passage. The city itself was very rich, probably the wealthiest city during the time of Paul's writing. It was a port city from which many of the goods were moved back and forth between Greece and Asia Minor. It was destroyed largely in, in 146 B.C., and then Julius Caesar rose up, and in 44 B.C., he rebuilt this city. And because of its great location, because of the port there, many people started coming in to that city, and, and the desire was to make a great name for themselves. That city created a great opportunity. Uh, every two years, Corinth, uh, they hosted Isthmian Games. Uh, a lot of theaters were, were there. Uh, they had this temple of uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of love. So there was just a lot going on. Greek culture permeated every aspect of the Corinthian life. According to some commentators, as many as 50 philosophical parties vied for acceptance and influence in the Greek culture each with its own view of man's origin, significance, destiny, and relationship to various gods. Needless to say, this city was very worldly. Uh, often the contemporary commentators and, and preachers, they liken this city to something like New York or Las Vegas or, or other very prominent city where has world written all over it. And perhaps we can be a little different here in Sacramento or wherever we, we find ourselves, but I would submit to you that uh, we reflect them in, in so many ways because the heart of man is the same. And so I think it's important for us to consider this. What happened in this church that over the course of time, the church began to value and boast in the wrong things. The, the residual effects of the Greek culture with which the Corinthian converts were so familiar, it began to influence their church, their community. They, they were not only divided about the Christian leaders that they were aspiring, but also the philosophical viewpoints. Some just could not get over their love for human wisdom. The Corinthian culture began to contaminate and confuse the very message of the gospel of Christ. Uh, yes, they, they trusted Jesus for their salvation, for, for the redemption through the cross, and, and they accepted him by faith, but they wanted to add human wisdom in order to make gospel a little bit more acceptable, 
to make gospel look a little bit more likable, to make it a little bit more appealing. And folks in the church began to live and not act like those in the marketplace. They were becoming proud and self-reliant. And it becomes very evident if you just survey 1 Corinthians. For instance, look at the way Paul addresses this issue of pride in, in this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 29. He writes and he says, so that no man may boast. So whatever it is that, that he's teaching, whatever it is that he's writing about, he's writing so that no man may boast. Look at verse 31. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 7. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Um, 3.21, so then let no one boast in men. 4.7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 4.18, now some have become arrogant. 5.2, you have become arrogant. I mean, Paul gets more and more precise here. Verse 8.1, knowledge makes arrogant. Verse 13, when he's, or chapter 13, when he's talking about love, look what he says about love. Again, discussing the very same topic of pride and humility. Verse 4 of chapter 13 and 5, love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not seek its own. If you were to go to the next book, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, now that, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. In other words, he, he says, uh, whatever, whatever I'm writing and I'm pleading with you, I, I am not thinking that, that somehow we are able, that somehow we are adequate. We are not adequate for this task. Our adequacy is from God. If you go to the end of this epistle, chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell with me. And so based on these verses, how would we define pride? What are we talking about here? And if you were to boil it down, it would, it would, it would be something like this. Pride is taking credit for and relying on ourselves. Uh, it is our unwillingness to admit our inability and give God full credit. Pride is our unwillingness to admit our inability and to give God full credit. And so Paul, writing to the church, addresses this issue of pride by focusing first and foremost on the simple message of the gospel. Before we're going to start talking and addressing specific issues in the church, let's, let's kind of level the playing field and let's make sure we're on the same page. And in order to do that, brothers and sisters, let me tell you about the gospel. And so he begins in verse 18. For the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18 is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached 
to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're not going to look at each one of these verses in, in great detail, but, but as we survey this section, here's what I want us to, to think about and to consider. Salvation through the cross is God's way to keep us permanently humble, yet boastful in Jesus. Salvation through the cross is God's way to keep us permanently humble, yet boastful in Christ. And in order to keep humble, you and I need to visit the foot of the cross often and regularly. And so if you have your outline there that was provided to you, follow along with me as we study this text. First thing I want us to notice is this, that God ordained the cross to humble us. God ordained the cross to humble us. The very first thing that Paul wants us and the Corinthians to understand is the cross is very offensive. Five times in verses 18 through 25, Paul likens the cross to foolishness. To foolishness. And he says there are two groups or two types of people in the world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Verse 18. To those who are perishing, the cross is offensive. It's revolting. It's too humble. It's foolish. It's, it's literally moronic. This message of the cross and message of Jesus dying for their sins is a moronic scene. The clever folks, the wise of this world, regard this message of the cross as silly and stupid nonsense. Look at verse 20. Paul asked this question. Look around, church. Where is the wise man? Can you locate a scribe? Where is the debater of the world in your midst? These individuals, he says, find the gospel message so offensive, so revolting, so humbling that they don't want any part of it. They're simply beyond this message of the gospel. And the question that comes up is, why is this message so offensive and so revolting? Now, I'll give you two things. Number one, the cross is offensive because it says to the world, you're a sinner. When I look at the cross and when I come to the cross, the very first thing that I must conclude 
is that I am a sinner. Through centuries, the cross has stood as a sign of fixed judgment upon the vanity, pride, hate, greed, and pleasures and lusts of men. The cross pricks at the conscience of the world and rightly accuses and condemns the sinner. Think about it. When you face the cross, the, the light of the cross, it penetrates your heart. The, the beams of its light goes down into the very darkest recesses of our heart where your pastors can't go, where your husbands and wives can't go, where your best friends can't go, but the cross does. The gospel does. And there that the light exposes your idolatry. It exposes our, our secret sins. It lays everything as it is before our eyes. And we see it, maybe for the very first time if we come to the cross, exactly who we are before God. And there are two reactions that, that we're faced with. There are two responses to that. You either cringe and you block out the light and you go back into the darkness because you love the darkness. The cross is foolish to you. It becomes a stumbling block to you for your pursuit of your pleasures. Or seeing everything in its true form, you become broken before the Lord. And by faith, you plead for mercy. And you plead for a savior. The cross is offensive because whenever we face the cross, we're faced with the reality that I am a sinner. Number two, the cross is offensive because it's so simplistic. The cross is so simplistic. As gruesome as it is, the saving method of the cross seems so shallow to the world. There is no sophistication in the cross. There's nothing you have to do. There's no heights you have to climb. There's no miles you have to run. There's no test you have to pass. It just tells you you're a sinner and believe. Uh, think about this. What, what do we normally esteem? What do we normally boast in? Paul tells us here in verse 22. He says, for consider Jews. They, they look for signs. Uh, Jews look for the display of power. They walk around and they tell Jesus, Jesus, tell, show us a sign so that we can believe in you. And what does Jesus tell him? I'll show you a sign. I'm going to die on the cross. He takes him right back to the cross. Takes him right back to that offensive symbol. But show us the sign. Uh, unless I see something miraculous, I will not believe. If God does what I desire, they say, then I will believe in him. Or, or some of us may reflect the attitude of the Jews and, and, you know, we would say something like, if God, you know, saves my brother who is dealing with cancer, then I will believe in him. If God just does something crazy that is so obvious that God is in the midst and that it's God's work, then I will trust what the Jews were ultimately saying is, God, satisfy my curiosity, and I'll give you what you want. Paul doesn't exclude us because he talks about the Gentiles here. Gentiles were all about that wisdom. 
For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. You know, they, they say something like, if you could prove to me that God exists, then I will believe. If you can explain to me the deep secrets of, of the universe so that it makes sense to my puny little mind, and if I can rationalize how this amazing God can do all of these things, and if I can understand it fully and completely, then I will believe. How does Paul treat such requests? Verse 23, but we preach Christ. And not only do we preach Christ, we preach Christ crucified. We talk about the cross a lot. This is God's plan. Look at verse 19. For it is written, this plan of the cross was established way at the beginning. The cross is not a New Testament thing. The cross is an Old Testament thing that point to the reality that it will happen at one point or another. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. This pride of power and wisdom cannot get anyone saved. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Guys, if any of you are striving to acquire wisdom in order to rationalize God and rationalize Christ and to rationalize the cross, you will never arrive at that point. It, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Worldly wisdom does not lead to the knowledge of God. For God's love to be known, he must reveal it, and he reveals it through the cross of Christ. God ordained that Christ should be the power and wisdom. Human wisdom, intellect, and our power, they pale in comparison to the foolishness of God, to the power that is displayed on the cross. No matter how powerful we may think we are or we may be, we cannot change our hearts one bit. And that is why we struggle sometimes with one another. In struggling and dealing with one another, in the misunderstanding and things like that, we feel, remember when Alexi was here the other time, he says, I, man, I just you know, sometimes wish that we had keypads and we could just program each other uh, to, to obey, right, and to follow. We, we can't do that. It must be God. We realize, we realize our inability in order to change our heart and to change each other's heart. It must be God, and God has only one way. But when you simply fall, right, at the foot of the cross and believe in the foolish message of the gospel, that you're a sinner for whom Christ bled and died, you experience this transforming power of the gospel. Christ becomes the power. Look at verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And you begin to walk in it and you begin to experience the power of the Spirit who is working in you on the daily basis, dealing with your sin as you try to please the Lord. There's a warning for us believers, brothers and sisters here. How often do we see those who are ashamed of the cross, who are ashamed of Christ, and yet kind of like Jesus? You know, they, they come around and they say, you know, uh, hey, we can work with that message. 
we can redeem some good attributes, you know, of Jesus and present it to the world so it's not as offensive. It's not as foolish. You know, we, we can kind of work with Jesus and we can really hype him up so that he can be accepted. That's what happened in this church. Believers began to shift their focus off of Jesus. And in some sense, Paul addresses this issue of the divisions even in the church. And, and, and as they shifted their focus off of Christ and off of the foolish message of the gospel, um, they, they shifted their focus onto men. And so if you look at verse 12, he says, now I mean this, that each of you is saying, hey, man, I'm with Paul and I'm with Apollos and I'm with Cephas. And then there's this special group of, of Christians who are like, man, forget men. I'm, I'm, I just follow Jesus. I'm of Christ. And just like before their conversion, when they were associated with one form of philosophy, of Greek philosophy or another, their association with big guys in the church became a source of pride. What they were essentially saying is, man, I, I, take, I take pride in this guy, or, or, or this guy discipled me, maybe this guy shaped my life. And, and Paul steps in and he addresses this attitude by saying, friends, guys, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter what these guys have added to your life. The, the message of the gospel is what's at stake. That's the core. I mean, when you look at verse 3 or chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, go there with me and look at, think about the context of, of verse 5 and 7. And when Paul talks about himself and he says, guys, I, I don't want you to think of me as anything but a servant. What then is Apollos, verse 5? What then is Paul's servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? I planted Apollos water, but God causing the growth, right? But God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God causing the growth. Now he who plants and the one who waters are one, but to each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What Paul was ultimately saying is, Paul, Apollos, you know, Peter were just mere tools. They were vessels. Their job is to explain the gospel, lead you to the cross, and assist you in understanding the implications of Christian discipleship. But as the Corinthian believers shifted their focus, they began to make the gospel message no longer this. It, it was about them. It was about people. It was about uh, their achievements later on. It was about their marriages. It was about their type of love. It was about their giftedness. It was about everything but that. And he said, no, 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 no. Gospel, humility deals with our pride. God ordained the cross to be forever humbling. He establishes the means of the cross to humble us, and we never escape the shadow no matter how long we've been saved. I'm reminded of a young man who had been hired by a large personnel department, and after passing all these interviews, he, he was assigned to one of the stores to go into work. And as he reported to work one day, the manager greeted him, shook his hand, smiled at him, and handed him a broom and said, your first job will be to sweep out the store. And this young man was kind of confused and and he looked up and said, but um, I'm a college graduate. And, and the manager smiled back and responded, oh, I'm sorry. Hey, give me the broom. I'll show you how. 
You know, I think sometimes we who have spent, you know, years in, in following Jesus and um, reading the Bible, some of us can say, man, we've, we've read this thing cover to cover on numerous occasions, and, and we can maybe have this kind of attitude like this, man, but I've been a Christian for a while. But I've been say I've been following Jesus forever, more than I've been alive. If you can make sense of that. And 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 I think the lesson for us is we never graduate from the school of the cross. It'll always be humbling experience. It must be. That's how God determined it to be. That's what, what Paul wants the church to return to. Don't replace the cross with something else in order to allow you to boast. The gospel message is so countercultural and out of this world that in God's wisdom, this is the way that he deals with human pride in order to strip you of everything. It must be that way. So first thing for us here this morning is God ordained the cross to humble us. As we look at verse 26, I want us to focus on this second thought. God ordained our calling to keep us humble. Not only is the cross a sign of humility, but God ordained our way to the cross to keep us humble. Paul says this, look at yourselves, verse 26. Look at yourselves. Consider your calling. How many of you can honestly raise your hand and claim to be powerful, claim to be wise, claim to be noble? He, in saying this in verse 26, consider your calling, brethren, for consider. Just think about this. He, he's almost calling the church to, you know, uh, look around and to consider and ponder to understand that the cross, you know, it does not attract the wise of this age. Obviously, there are some even in this congregation who are naturally smart and who are naturally capable and able and wise. Uh, if you think about the author who wrote 1 Corinthians, this man here, we uh, deem him as, as being probably the greatest theologian, the greatest writer. His writing is out of this world. His preaching is out of this world. Um, his thinking is out of this world. He was studied in the best of schools. He pursued the best of things. And when you consider him in the Philippians, and, and Paul says, for the sake of Jesus, I count all that as rubbish so that I can value Jesus Christ. And before Paul entered into Christianity and became a Christian, he had to be knocked off his high horse. That's just the reality of the gospel. That's what the gospel does. So Paul says here, the wise are not attracted by the gospel. The noble are not attracted by the cross. Quite frankly, the cross is not even attractive to fools. Nobody is attracted by the cross. You can't get anyone to look at the cross and to behold the beauty of the cross. But how do you come to see the beauty of Christ and trust him to be your Savior and Lord? In other words, what made us, right, consider Jesus what made us look to Christ and to believe and repent? And Paul says this, consider your calling. Consider your calling. 
You were called. God drew you. For anyone to fall at the feet of the man nailed to the cross, man, you've got to see something the world doesn't see. That is why when you move into a new neighborhood and when you start sharing the gospel with your unbelieving neighbors and you tell them about Jesus, they look at you and they scoff at you. Why? Because they don't see what you're seeing. They can't experience what you experience. Why? Because you were drawn to the cross. God called you to come. God first chooses and calls you by grace. He opens up your eyes so that you can behold Christ. I mean, it's, it's undeniable here in verse 24, but to those who are the called, verse 26, uh, for consider your calling, brethren. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. At the end of verse 27, and God has chosen the weak things of the world. In 28, God has chosen he wants us to understand that we are here because of God. We are here because God chose and called us into fellowship with him. And we enter through the humble cross. If you want to write this down, Ephesians. Go to Ephesians and read verses 1 through uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This whole calling of God is emphasized first and foremost. We are here, brothers and sisters, church. We are here because God called us into this fellowship with him. In other words, you and I had nothing to do with it. It wasn't our power or wisdom or, or expertise in a certain field that, that drew God to us. It was his grace. Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, for, for God, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, we looked at Jesus and we saw something in him at one point in our life, what we failed to see our previous life. In other words, Jesus, at one point, became so valuable to us, we decided, like Paul, to leave everything behind. All of the stuff that we were working with, all of the stuff that we, we think added to our value of our life, something that we could present to one another and compare who is greater, who is better. We saw something in Jesus that said, you're a sinner, but brother and sister, I am right here to deal with your sin, and I'm right here to give you something that you have longed to, that you have hoped to build up, which you cannot build. I, I'm right here, and I'm going to give it to you. We saw in the face of Christ the glory of God, and it started with him. If you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. You only knocked because there was a door to knock. You only entered because there was a door to enter through. Now, why does God choose and, and, and calls primary the nobodies of the world? That's, that's Paul's whole point here. 
He stacks up all, all these qualifiers and he says, none, none of these, the nobodies of the world. Why? He gives it to you right here to shame the wise. To shame the wise. So that nobody on the inside of the door <clears throat> would come to think that he is there because of his doing. Some of you may be sitting here and thinking, how do I know if I'm called or if I'm chosen by God? I deal a lot with that in our youth group where we have young guys and young ladies and, and men who come and says, okay, we talk about God's election. We talk about God's choosing. And how, how do I know if I'm called, if I'm chosen? Go to F Gospel of John chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1. Now I'll read you a few verses beginning with 11, verse 11. Check this out. John writes, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. They didn't accept Jesus. But as many as accepted him, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's the thing. If you choose God, you're chosen by God. If you choose God, but as many as received Jesus, as many as believed in Jesus, as many as accepted Jesus, if you choose God, you prove to be chosen by God. At one point in your life, you understood you need Jesus. And you came and you repented and you were broken and you sought forgiveness of sins and you continue to live for Christ right now. Know that you are a child of God, verse 13, who were born of the will of God. So don't let this language confuse you. Don't let this language disturb you in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has chosen brothers and sisters, youth. If you choose to follow Jesus, if you believe in Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord, you prove to be this one, a child of God. The doctrine of God's choice and calling, it humbles us, doesn't it? It should remind us that it's not about us. It's all because of Jesus. It's all about God desiring to take the scum of this world, men and women who are marred by sin, and to love on them like crazy in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what God does for us daily. So not only God ordained the cross to humble us, not only does he summons us to behold Jesus and he ordained our means to the cross to humble us. Number three, God ordained that all our resources would be in Christ to keep us humble. God ordains and grants everything to us only in Jesus and nothing apart from Jesus. Look at verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, by his doing, refers back to this whole discussion of God's calling and choosing you. It is something that God did for us, apart from us, 
apart from our, us acquiring some kind of qualification, but by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus who becomes to us, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Again, so that if you were going to boast, you can only boast in Jesus. No man must boast. I mean, think about this. We remind ourselves of the gospel. We should remind ourselves of the gospel each and every day. Christ came down from heaven for someone else's benefit. He didn't do it for his own. He came for us. He lived, he died, and he was resurrected on behalf of another, on behalf of you and me. The scriptures is full of these references. In his life and death, he earned righteousness and sanctification. That is why Christ could not come when he was 33 years old. He had to have been born as a perfect man and live through every stage of life in order to acquire righteousness that will later then, at the point of our calling, can be granted to us, can be placed on us as if I was that man who never disobeyed his parents. As if I was that man who was always obedient during my teen years. It was Christ's work. He earned it for us. In his resurrection, he secured our redemption. It is his. It is not ours. Highlight this verse. Underline it. Circle it. Verse 30. But by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. In God's infinite wisdom, Christ becomes all of these things to us. Our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, and our wisdom. I mean, you know this verse one of the greatest verses in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He earned it for us. God declares us to be righteous in his son. This was the sticking point of the Reformation. This was the point that Martin Luther realized that I am not to go out and to live in a monastery the rest of my life in order to acquire righteousness of my own. No, we were declared to be righteous, not because we've accumulated, but it's this foreign righteousness that's been basically imported and placed on us. Christ is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. Having been declared righteous, we have now the Spirit of Christ who propels us to fight against the indwelling sin and continues to motivate us towards further godliness. You know, we come to faith through the cross and we allow the gospel to continue to penetrate and to continue to expose our hearts in the deeper recesses of our being that which still needs to be transformed, and that is the work of the Spirit. That is the work of Christ in us. And redemption. As we live for Christ day by day, we look forward to the day when we will finally and fully be redeemed. Redeemed not only from the power, but also from the presence of sin. 
This redemption is, is guaranteed, brothers and sisters. Our redemption here that is promised, you will be saved. If you were the call, you will be saved. Why? The promise is not based on somehow God hoping that you will make it to the end. There's zero hope. You woke up this morning and you realized there's zero hope. I'll make it to the end. Where is our hope? Christ is our redemption. The hope is that Jesus secured it for us by his death and resurrection. It's all because of Jesus. And so that's why after discussing for the first three and four chapters about the gospel and how it humbles us, Paul concludes in chapter 4, verse 7, this, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you received, uh, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So, verse 31, let him who brags, brag about Jesus. You want to brag? Brag about Jesus. God hates human pride. Why? Because he loves his son. Think about this. God hates human pride. Why? Because he loves his son. And since he offers everything through the son, it is only good. We, we come before the Lord with reverence to accept that and say, Lord, we cannot accumulate things on our own, but we accept what you have prepared for us in Jesus Christ. And we're going to brag about him and we're going to boast about him because we received everything in and through him. You know, in conclusion, just two thoughts. You know, focusing on the cross, as Paul outlines it here, eliminates any comparison with other Christians here, even in our midst or outside. When we focus on the cross, it, it, it takes us from a place where we uh, compare and compete to a place where we realize that, brother, sister, we're only here because of God's doing through Christ. There's no competition. There's just the humble realization that who we are as Christians and where we are in our Christian walk, we understand that there are mature Christians, that there are immature Christians, and everywhere in between. But we will never get to that full maturity until we are transformed and redeemed. But wherever you may find yourself, you cannot look at another brother or sister who is ahead of you or who is behind you and say, you know, I am here because I read more. I am here because I pray more. I am here because I'm serious about my fellowship and worship. No, you are here only because of the doing of Christ. And praise God, you're here. Look back and grab someone else with you and pray with him and read with him and serve him. And as you look forward and you see other brothers and sisters who are ahead of you, ask them to grab you and to take you further and to work with you, to pray with you realizing one thing, that no matter where you are, you are in because Christ said, come on in. You are on your way because God said, I'll take you through. I'll give you the spirit to do it. 
And so thereby encourage one another with this. And number two, focusing on the cross eliminates comparisons with other churches and with other ministries. You know, one thing that we need to understand, and, and I hope that we're getting to a place where we as a church, where we understand that, hey, we're just one small part of a greater whole. We're just, right now, five minutes till 12, we're sitting here and we're worshiping as one small little congregation among so many other congregations here in Sacramento and in other greater areas all over the world, praising that one Savior because of His work and what He has done for us. And, and, and we eliminates any comparison and competition because it is His work. And if we want God to be glorified through us more, then we pray to that extent and we work harder to that extent. But it is his work. None of us, none of them. And that's the goal of the gospel. Eliminate pride, humble all, and look to Jesus. Because it is by his doing we are in him. Salvation through the cross is God's way to keep us permanently humble, yet boastful in Jesus. And for us to be humble and to keep humble, we must come to the foot of the cross daily and regularly. Father, we are so thankful to you for the truth of your word. It is so simple, yet it's so, it's so hard. It's hard to lay down our pride. And yet we know that the spirit who is in us is powerful to suppress the sinful urges of us being heard, of us being um, shown off in one way or another. Help us all to think about how can we honor Jesus? How can we boast of Jesus? Lord, let this not be a cliche statement. Help us to consider how we can practically do this in our midst, in our church, outside of this church. You're great, Father. We thank you for your love for us. We love you, and we know that you will continue to work out your purposes and plans in us individually and together as a church in order to magnify the name of our Lord Jesus even more. We pray to that and in his holy name. Amen.